Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that bad, they're wrong. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. Okay, we're going to come get some extra Scientology edition today with Claire Headley. You'll, you'll hear it in its entirety a little bit over an hour here. Uh, Claire talks about uh, her time in the cadet org. This is something you don't hear her talk about a lot, and it is we pretty much covered the gambit, and she did a real good, real good job representing uh, her story here to, uh, on today's show. Uh, I want to talk about what's happening in the media right now, the overwhelming attention that's going into um, sexual abuse in Hollywood. It's a big thing ever since this Harvey Weinstein came up, and now you have uh, a bunch of other uh, actors, celebrities, directors uh, being brought up as uh, people who have uh, been claimed to a sexual assault or the people they work with. And uh, you see the thing with Kevin Spacey, and he uh, apparently did something with a – or tried to do something with a 14-year-old, and uh, he didn't really flat out deny it, tried to blame it on alcohol, and then said, oh, by the way, I'm calling out of the closet. So that was a sort of distract. So it was really crappy, I thought, and it sucks because I'm a big fan of Spacey's work. <clears throat> Excuse me. And here he is um, distracting and distracting, and Netflix pulls House of Cards, and it leaves a lot of us who are Scientology watchers or involved in, in you know criticizing Scientology or ex-Scientologists. Everybody's looking at this going, well, what about Danny Masterson? He's got a, a Netflix show called The Ranch, and that 70s show is on there. Why do we have to look at his fucking face and be disgusted by it every time we turn on Netflix? So there's a whole campaign about boycotting Netflix or going to Netflix and saying, hey, why this and not that? Why is there preferential treatment for this guy? Was this, is there a Scientology connection there? And, and I think something that's missing in that argument, though, is maybe a little more pressure needs to be put on law enforcement over there in California for doing something because I, I'm no expert. I don't have anyone on the inside of the case uh, that's working on it or anything, but – it's my understanding they've had enough to move forward months ago, so I really wish I understood what's happening. But they managed to get an episode of Lair Remini Scientology Aftermath pulled, which you know was their agreement. They agreed to pull it and not air it because of the cases ongoing. But you know, to say the case is ongoing, they actually have motion in the case are two different things, and I think uh, attention needs to be paid to this. And you know, hey, look, kudos to Netflix for. For seeing that a 14-year-old was assaulted and, and actually caring about child sexual assault because uh, if more people cared about it, there'd probably be no Scientology today. 
and you're going to hear a lot more about that, even a little bit in today's show. We're going to hear a lot more about that in the coming weeks, uh, the next uh, three or four weeks here. Um, I think it's going to go about three or four more weeks uh, left of the show. And you're going to hear from Sina Kamula, and you're going to hear from Tara Riley, and you're going to hear uh, from Miriam Francis. You're going to hear things you haven't heard yet or read yet. And you're going to hear uh, their, their perspectives, and you're going to be amazed at the power these, these ladies bring to the subject of, uh, of child neglect and abuse and, uh, and, 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 of course, the other part of it. But right now, uh, let's go ahead. Let's get right into it. Here is, uh, in its entirety, uh, Claire Headley. Okay, I've been looking forward to this for some time. I've been trying real hard to get this one booked. Um, I have Claire Headley with me on the line. Hello, Claire. Thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming on. I've been really trying to get you or Mark on for a while now, and uh, I appreciate it because I know, I know it's been difficult for you to schedule, so it's great that you're here. And uh, I want to try to talk about some things that you don't always talk about, as well as touch on some of the things that you have talked about in the past, if that's, uh, if that's all good with you. Yep, sounds great. All right. So, you know, one of my first questions I ask almost every interview, and it, it won't really be the same with you and with some of the others, and that is how you got into Scientology, because you didn't, you weren't recruited. Uh, no, I didn't get into Scientology. I was born into Scientology. <laughs> um, my my mother um, was recruited into Scientology when she was pregnant with me. Uh, she and my father both were participating members at that time um, in Manchester, England, which is where I was born. Um my mom was gotten in by her older brother, um, and so I was born, quite literally born into Scientology, and that was my introduction. It was never, never my choosing, never my choice, never my decision, never my desire. Uh, it was by birth, that's where I landed. All right, and you were, um... You were, like many other children, um, you were left at a cadet org. Was it the, the St. Hill um, location? Yes. So the the backstory on how I ended up there was that uh, when I was around two, my father no longer wanted any part of Scientology when he left. That obviously caused a massive problem for their marriage and relationship, and my mother ended up divorcing my father when I was three. Um, so after that, I never, I've never known my father. I still don't to this day. Um, you know, I have been able to reconnect with um, that his side of the family, which was great, um, and it's yeah. been wonderful to, to at least, you know, <laughs> my my goal since leaving Scientology has been to connect with any family not in that hellhole. <laughs> And I've been very successful at that. And you know, Good. my only regret is my only regret is I never got to grow up with those people because I was so isolated from any other family than those in Scientology. But nonetheless, it's been a great experience. Anyway, so um, my mom and dad divorced when I was three, and shortly after my fourth birthday, my mother joined the C organization signed a billion-year contract, packed up in Manchester, and we drove off to, um, and arrived at St. Hill. And that's where, so that, that's where we arrived. I mean, we, uh, my, my first moment 
of arriving there were being shoveled into a crunchy, moldy, nasty basement that barely even had light at Stoneland. Um, and that's where I was assigned to sleep while my mom was doing the EPF. That's the, my, the, basically the introductory steps where members have to prove that they can do any task assigned, no matter how difficult, and that they will, you know, do what they're told, basically. That's where that's where staff members are programmed to do as they're told and uh, perform as a member of the Sea Org. Um, so that's where that was my first beginning memories of life at Stonelands at four years old, and and I was handed off to initially the nursery for the first few months, and then I graduated in, from the nursery into the cadet org. Wow, and what was that? I mean, how what was your experience with that? Because you hear experiences, you hear some pretty, pretty awful horror stories from that. What was your experience? What what did you encounter? Um, I mean, no doubt, uh, the, the day we arrived at um, St. Hill and Stoneland, and uh, you know, basically right at that moment, I lost my mom. That she was no longer my mother; she was now a Sea Org member. I I was in the care of uh, other Sea Org members, not my mom. I was, from that point forward, I was lucky if I saw my mom two hours a week. Um, you know, she was working from eight o'clock in the morning until midnight, and um, and so my my battle as a child became fighting for time, attention, and love from my mother. So. Obviously, that's a really bad situation to be in as a four-year-old. Um, I've often reflected, you know, since leaving and since having kids of my own, um, it's quite the, the tenacity of children in an abusive situation is absolutely unbelievable. You know, you, as a child in that kind of a situation, you, you just roll with the punches. But that doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's normal. It doesn't mean it doesn't inflict absolutely deep trauma um, it does and and you know I spent it wasn't until I had children of my own that I even could really look at it and think about it you know I I tell people all the time my husband didn't even know I was in the cadet org until after we left we'd been married 13 years by that point why well why would you ever talk with those you love about your darkest most awful moments you know that's just how I look at it it wasn't that I didn't want to tell him. It's just that I didn't ever want to go go there. You know. Right. Anyway, that's probably a long answer for what you were looking for there. But that's fine. Anyway, it was, <laughs> you know, we were we no longer had parents. None of us. We were. Many of the children got in trouble. Many of the children. We we went to public school, and we were social outcasts because. All the other kids toddled to school with their parents or got dropped off. We got shuttled there in a Seerg bus by a Seerg member we barely knew, and we were unkempt. We had, you know, crappy clothing. Um, many, many of the cadets didn't bathe, stained of poop, had mice. I mean, it was really, really bad. So much so that the teachers, you know, would um, often kind of try and. Um, befriend us and 
you know, uh, anyway, there's many stories of that, but it's just, you know, we had no parents, so wow. <laughs> we were called names because we were, you know, I, I get it. The other kids did not understand the circumstance, neither did we. And and not only that, we, we weren't even learning normal English. We were learning Scientology language, which you know, I'm sure you know. You can have a conversation with a scientist. Two Scientologists can have a conversation, and and a, somebody who had no idea what the conversation was about could be listening and would not understand one single word of that. Yeah. Like, you know, a child in the normal world is saying, hey, uh, let's calm down. Let's, let's, you know, just take it easy. Let's sort this out. No, in Scientology, it's stop being fancy. What does that mean? <laughs> that's, but that's, that, that's what I grew up with, or, you know, oh, you have an ERC break? <laughs> okay. And so, as a child learning that language, then when you go to public school, if you talk like that, you're going to get, uh, you're going to quickly lose any friends you might have possibly had. So, so this wasn't a Scientology school, this was a, a regular school. It was a regular school at West, West Coastley um, Public School because while Scientologists, public Scientologists could afford to send their child to Scientology schools, a steward member had no money. So right. no way are they going to the Scientology public school. They get to go to, I mean, not sorry, the Scientology private school. They get to go to the public school. So for your daily life, there was sort of a normalization for the the conditions you lived in, and the way you were treated. So you'd go, but you'd go to school and you would see people had so much better things, so much better lives. Yes, yes. As a child, I longed to, to just have a normal life. All I wanted was my mom to have money, to live in a house, to spend time with me. You know, I probably at around six, I. I Decided I would never join the Sea Org. Of course, that didn't that didn't pan out because I quickly learned that if I didn't join the Sea Org, and I was going to be in very deep ethics trouble, as they call it, and a social outcast from even from the Cadet Org, and my mom would be mad with me, and all other kinds of consequences. So I didn't end up being able to stick with that decision. But that was my decision because of those experiences. I absolutely hated the Cadet Org. I. I I hated my life, and ironically, <laughs> this is this is how little this has been talked about in the outside world. I mean, now obviously, um, more and more cadets and more and more children who grew up in Scientology are speaking out, which is amazing. Yes. But <clears throat> in 2009, we had an ongoing lawsuit against the Church of Scientology. And so one day, um, I was called in for deposition by their lawyers, and Mark Marmoreau, who is now a, um, a, a, a judge for the Supreme Court in California, he was the lawyer who was taking my deposition. And one of the first things that, that they did in the first day of deposition is he pulled out that, that picture that's floating, that was shown in uh, Going Clear, the HBO documentary, and it's floating around on the internet, that the picture that I'm in of the UK mm. cadet I've seen it, so yeah. he showed me that picture. He showed me that picture. That's actually how I got a copy of it, because he gave it to me in deposition. 
so he shows me that picture, and he says, is that you? And I said, yes. And he said, okay, and can you describe to me what that's a picture of, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the point being, after I've described all of that, he said, so, did you have a happy childhood? And literally, my jaw hit the floor. I'm like, are you kidding me with that question? You really have no idea. It, it just, you know, obviously he was told, oh, I was in some, I, I don't know what he was told, but to ask that question was just absolutely flabbergasting. Wow. I mean, was this something basically just using that picture to say, look, they're smiling, they're happy, you know? Right. Yeah, that means nothing. Like, okay, notice, we, we are children. We're all in uniform, ages you know, the children in that picture, I think, are ages 5 to probably 15 or 16. No parents. We were raised by checklists and statistics. It wasn't my mom putting me to bed or reading me a story or tucking me in. No, it was the cadet coordinator uh, putting me in my, you know, in the girls' dorm um, and making sure that I've done my done my chores, we used to have to weed the whole property, we used to have to polish all the floors where the staff lived, we used to have to clean up the kitchen where all the staff were fed. I mean, you know, these are not normal household chores. These are <laughs> right. uh, janitorial maintenance staff roles that children ages 5 to 15 are being required to perform. No, that's absolutely right. You talk about how you, it's, it's interesting, and it's probably the wording they used a bit. You graduated from the nursery into a post, basically. Right. And and that's not like graduating, like, oh, I have responsibilities, now I vacuum, and now I do dishes. This is this is hard labor. Right. That's exactly right. All right. So, there, you talk about how you all you could think about was being around your mom, being able to have that. That 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 you know that loving relationship and to have that kind of attention, and you didn't get any of that from staff, right? They, they basically you, you were, and I think this actually matches some things written in some LRH policy about children. You were basically just nuisances to them. Yep, absolutely. I mean, the bottom line is, Aaron Hubbard believes that children are not children. Children are adults in small bodies, and that's how they're to be addressed and treated, and, and uh, that's how their duties are assigned and everything else. So, you know, we were essentially, each cadet was assigned a, a position. You know, in Scientology, they have a seven-division org board, and that covers all the, all the functions. So we were, uh, that, that's how we were run. I mean, when I was seven, I was made in charge of a group of seven or eight children, um, who were, you know, around my age. Some of them were a little bit younger. And it was my task to make sure that they followed their checklist, that they made their beds, brushed their teeth, got up in the morning, went to school, ate breakfast. That was my job. That's wow. Seven years old. Yeah. Was there resentment by your peers, by the other kids, that you were in charge of them? Or is it just no, normal? No, no. <laughs> We were all so miserable. I mean, yeah, maybe. There were there were definitely rebellious kids who got in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, I don't know. I was I, I, I wish I had been a rebel. I just never, you know, I only had my mom, and 
I never knew my dad. I was kind of desperate to try and keep my mom at that point. And they hold that over you? I, of course, absolutely. You know, children who misbehave, they would get punished. Uh, I mean, that, and, and I, a, a good friend of mine when I was six, her mom um, was declared a suppressive person, and boom, that's it. My friend no longer had a mother. The mother was gone, and she never saw her again. Oh, they actually made good on the threat. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my God. So I, I knew, I, I, this connection was not a myth for me. It was a reality. I knew kids who did not have parents because of this connection. Hey, I, I never knew my dad because of this connection. I didn't understand that until years later. He, he vaporized out of my life when I was three years old, and I assumed it was my fault. And there was no one to tell you it wasn't? No, absolutely not. In fact, years later, my mom told me, oh, you know, uh, when I divorced your dad, you stopped talking. You just wouldn't talk anymore for months. And so I took you into the Manchester org, and they said I needed to give you an R factor. <laughs> you know, R factor is reality factor, Scientology is for explain to the child what the heck is going on. Okay. But what, what was it? What, 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 I'm just trying to understand. What, what is that? How does that? How does that work? It, it, you know, basically, then I'm sure my mom. I don't remember this. This is what my mom told me. I'm sure she said, "Oh, your dad and I have gotten divorced, and blah blah blah." Trying to fix the fact or explain to me and help me understand why my father. Oh, um, so they're, and they're not explaining it, it to you like it's a child. Really my only point is. Yeah, really, my only point is, obviously, I was traumatized, and her solution for that was Scientology. It was always, Scientology was the solution for everything, from beginning to end. Okay. Okay, and that's, that's what's instilled, and that's why these things continue, it seems. Um, yes. Something you said in, in the, I, I've seen you say this, I've seen you write it, I think, even, you talk about when your mom came to you because I guess it was a it was, it was a pretty intense moment for you because your mom was going to tell you she wouldn't see you for months, which you know you already were seeing her barely, and it was the way you worded it that stuck with me. I, I messaged you about this recently was, and this is this is the way you said it was, when my mom came to me at where I was working at six years old, and it just yeah. I, everything stopped for me when I heard that line. <laughs> I understand, <laughs> which is funny that you say that because, of course, to me, my childhood was just my life experiences, and yes, I had some ideas here and there that it wasn't, that my childhood was not the same as someone else's childhood, but that didn't necessarily help me reconcile with, you know, I've always looked at it again from the perspective that, hey, if you don't know what normal is, That's normal. how do you recover from that? How do you, you can't ever get your childhood back. You can't ever retrieve your family bonds. Those are gone forever. They just are, you know, and some days I'm angry about that. Sometimes, some days I'm very sad about that. Um, other days I just go, you know, my mom has made her choices. She made the decisions she made. I, I'm willing to forgive her, but not while she's actively making hate videos against me. 
I've never said anything hurtful about her other than that she was a young mother. She got pregnant with me when she was 17, and she made some very bad choices, choices that I, over my dead body, would make. Like, never in a million years would I let my children get anywhere near something like that. You know, so I, I get it. She, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to say beyond that, but yes, when I was six years old, um, <clears throat> I was I was working with the cadetors, you know, just doing my tasks. I, I very rarely saw my mother, and that was just normal. And she came to see me, and she was crying. And um, she told me, you know, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm being sent on a mission to Europe uh, for several months. We were in England, so she was going to be going on a tour all around Europe with two other staff members to recruit new members into Scientology and the SEA organization. And she said, I've queried it. I tried to explain to them that I'm a single mother. Yeah, I'm sick. Like, really? Boil it down. What this means is I'm not going to see my mom for months, and I'm not going to get to spend Christmas with her. And so I was assigned to a family I barely knew, and they were supposed to keep an eye on me while my mom was gone. And she sent me little postcards from Switzerland and Germany. And, you know, that, that was it. I didn't see her. You know, it, it, sounds, like, it sounds like your mom did care. It, it seems like yeah. when I talk to people from the cadet or I talk to people from their childhood, that there is a bit of resentment towards the parents because of what they because they left you that way and because you can't see doing that yourself because you had that experience. Right. It feels like, and I don't want to excuse anything that had to do with hurting a child other than your own, but the idea that it seems like the way the brain works, the way you think of things, the way you accept things, the way you process things is reshaped and reformed so tightly within the realm of occult like Scientology that this was absolutely in her mind this is the right thing. Yes, yes. And that and that's where Scientology is just dangerous from beginning to end. Because when you can when you can get someone to essentially absolve themselves of their parental rights and responsibilities and turn over their children completely to strangers, really, and and in some cases pedophiles, and uh, and not even see your children. That's dangerous. Now you hear a lot about the abuses in Scientology, the uh, the pedophiles, the sexual assault, the physical abuses, and we already we talked a lot already about the mental abuses. But when you talk to a Scientologist, even an ex-Scientologist, especially if you weren't around it personally, it's like, no, that doesn't happen. That's not like that. But it seems like it was a lot going on. Did, did you witness stuff like that? I did, yes. I mean, and, and here's the thing. A Scientologist is trained to lie and cover up and do whatever they have to do to protect the public image of Scientology. So they will always deny that that these things happen. Always. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I've, I've never been present when 911 was called, for example, and yet I've seen several devastating accidents 
You know, I've never seen a pedophile reported to the authorities, and yet I, uh, um, so there was a, there was an instance when I was seven or eight years old, um, my friend and I were playing at St. Hill, which is where the staff worked, and a 40-year-old, approximately male staff member was trying to get my friend and I to go play at his office. Well, I didn't want any part of it, but my friend went along. And, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't want to go. She's like, oh, well, I'm going to go. And he molested her. That was never reported to the police. And that girl is still in Scientology to this day. Did you tell any adults that you suspected something, or you, was that too much of a dangerous thing for you to do for yourself? No, well, I didn't. It, it, see, that's the thing. You, you know, I didn't. It's not that I thought he was going to do something. I just was creeped out. And then, and then afterwards, my mom was asking me about it. She said, "You know, what happened with you and Heidi?" I said, "Well, we were we were playing and." You know, this person wanted us to go to his office, and I didn't want to go. And she said, why didn't you go? And it was almost like an undercurrent of blame, like as if I knew something was going to happen. Right. And it was a curiosity as to why I didn't go. No, I went to public school, and they taught me stranger danger. And that's what was going off in my mind, was stranger danger. You know, of course I had no idea. I didn't even know. Anyway. So are you supposed to go? I could have been there. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's all good. Are you supposed to say? Are you supposed to think to yourself, "I could have been there. I could have stopped it. So I better not say anything because I messed up." Yeah, I don't know. It's it's so it's so warped when it comes to yeah. stuff. And and you know, as I mentioned, there were there were um, sexually abusive situations I was in that are with other cadets, older cadets, and there was just no parents around. And so I, I never reported it. I, you know, I, that's the thing. It's abuse of children to such an extreme degree. I think that, and thinking of, think of thinking about it as a mom of three boys now, it blows my mind. I mean, when my when my oldest son turned four years old, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, oh my God, that was me. Oh God. And my mother's the organization. Uh, oh. It's just, you know, uh, there's no, there's, becoming a mom is the only thing that's helped me to get perspective on what actually happened and help me deal with that trauma. It's, you know, it's, it's very difficult. And that, and that's where, you know, for the handful of um, cadets and children who were raised in Scientology now who are speaking out, they have my utmost respect because hard. I know how hard, I know how hurtful it is. I know how desperately all we ever wanted was a loving family and a mom or a dad who would stand up for us and protect us. And we never had that. And many of us, I think, are still fighting for that now. And, and as a result, you know, maybe not in a, in a position where they feel comfortable speaking out. For me personally, um, Standing up and speaking out was the best thing I could have ever done because, you know, ultimately, um, and ultimately I was pushed to that by Scientology and because in 2008, um, they sent child services to our house and 
I had not spoken out against Scientology up until that point. Oh, wow. I was, I was okay with that. I was okay with Mark doing that, even though I was scared. I was fearful. I didn't like it. It, it went again. You know, it was, it was very, very hard. But the second they sent child services to our house, and the gentleman who came was really nice, and he just said, look, we got an anonymous tip. Uh, we checked it out. It's clearly bullshit. But by law, we have to come here. And we just want to tell you, you need to watch your back. Of course, I had no question. Oh, uh, okay, great. Thanks for the heads up. And, th- I mean, I remember closing the door after that conversation. And it was, that's it. This is bullshit. Excuse my language. But oh. I was like, game off. They've, I'm drawing the line in the sand. I don't agree to silence anymore. I am going to Talk about my experiences. All bets are off. I, Good. I don't agree to silence anymore. I'm not going to be bullied by these people. And and damn right, I'm never going to make sure. I'm going to make sure my children are never in a position where they feel bullied or intimidated or scared or anything of that nature in regards to telling the truth of what happened. Can, can I just say, oh my God, <laughs> you know, part part of my language, but but these motherfuckers, that's what they do. Um, of, yeah. the, of the people who protected people who hurt children and still do to this day. These people you're talking about from the 90s and the 80s doing this thing. How many people have they done that to since then because they're still walking free today? And they send child services to your home? And and what does that do yeah. to your children that they think, oh my God, am I going to get taken away? Yeah, well, well, my children were two and two months old. Oh, okay. That okay. <laughs> so you weren't thinking about it. Okay. No, no. I mean, and it really was entirely, absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, it woke me up to the fact that, hey, I tried to leave. I tried to shut the door on the darkest, most awful years of my life and just walk away. But they, Scientology, would have none of it. They're going to wow. continue to harass and bully me. And therefore, I go, okay, good. Then I'm going to tell my truth. My voice will be heard. Yes. Love it. Love it. That, is, that is awesome. Uh, um, that, you're being, that you're being heard, not, not any of the other stuff. Um, no, no, I know. I get it. <laughs> but, but you did go into the Sea Org, and that's what most people hear about. What most people know is about your time in the Sea Org. That's what gets talked about the most. And I guess we should talk about yes. that a little bit. Yes. So, well, yeah, I mean, that starts with when I was in cadet org, it was a requirement that all cadets sign the billion-year contract. And like I told you, I originally as a child, I was like, no way am I joining the Sea Org. Then I kind of compromised, and my thought process as a child was, well, I I want to have kids, so in my mind, obviously, I'm not vocalizing any of this, but I remember it like it was yesterday. I'm going, well... I'll join the Sea Org when I'm 45, when my life is over. <laughs> uh, but then I will have been able to live and enjoy life, and then when it's all said and done at age 45, then I'll join the Sea Org. Interesting. And actually, my goal as a child was I really wanted to be a teacher, and I wanted to go to Oxford University, and this and that and the other thing. And, and when I was around 9 or 10, I used to talk about... Um, this goal to my mom 
and she said, oh, you know, um, teachers are required to study psychology. And boom, just like that, she shot the arrow that popped my dream. And because, of course, I was raised to believe psychology and psychiatry are the most uh, awful, God-forbidden subjects on this earth that you cannot possibly study. And they are evil, and they are destroy people, and everything else like that. So she killed my dream right there. But um, anyway, so I, I ended up signing a fear contract um, when I was in cadet or when I was around seven. Then um, my mom actually rounded out of the fear when I was 10. She had remarried, and she got pregnant, and the rule had just changed right when she found out she was pregnant to where children were not allowed in the fjord. So she was actually told, you can have this baby, uh, but it will be the last baby born into the fjord. Um, wow. But you can stay and do this. If you, if you decide to. Well, she decided to take a one-year leave of absence to have the baby and then go back into the Stewart, and she never ended up going back. She paid a freeloader bill. She remained in good standing as a Scientologist. She got um, sick checks, so she was basically interrogated for her crimes as to, you know, why she had left and all that. And, um, and she remained married to my stepfather, who was not actually a fewer member, a very complicated mess. But and and so uh, when when I when she was in the process of routing out of the Seorg, she was on heavy manual labor and being interrogated. And um, and several Seorg members started grilling me to get me to stay in the Seorg. Um, and so they were trying to get me to uh, like they knew my mom was going to leave but they wanted me to stay. And I, <laughs> I was, you know, I don't know what to tell you other than that. I was like, no way in hell am I staying here. Um, and even though I was, you know, all my friends wouldn't talk to me anymore from the cadet or because I was now, you know, an outcast because my mom was leaving and yada, yada, yada. Um, but I, I didn't agree to stay, but I still continued to do services um, it, at St. Hill. And then um, I signed another billion-year contract when I was 12, another one when I was 13, another one when I was 14. And when I was 14, by that time we'd moved to, to California, um, when I was 14, they, they the recruiters were heavily on me. I mean, they, uh, there was some, there was uh, two or three recruiters from SLAG um, who where they just wouldn't, ne- they wouldn't leave me alone. Like they were calling off the hook, they would show up, show up at our house. And at one wow. point, I broke down in tears with my mom and my stepdad, uh, and I said, "I need your help. I cannot, I cannot get these people off my back." And my stepdad said, "Well, wait a minute. You did the professional TRS course. That's the communication drills in Scientology. The 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 product of the professional TRS course." is that you can handle any communication situation no matter how tough. So you need to deal with this. <laughs> wow. That was my parents coming to my, coming to my rescue, quote unquote. You know, 
And at that point, I knew I was on my own, and I really knew it was just a matter of time before I came because I felt haunted and hounded, and um, I I just saw no way out. I, I was like, they're, they're never going to leave me alone until I join the field. And eventually, I caved, and um, then I started on the EPF in PAC in July of 1991. So I was I was then working in in PAC uh, at the PAC base. I finished the EPF. I was assigned a, a post, and I was working there until the end of September of 1991. And by that point, I was then promoted to the um, headquarters in Hemet, California, and that's where I worked um, for the most part until I escaped in January 2005. Okay. So what, what's going to make this really hard, as you said earlier, and uh, it's, it's, it's almost perfectly set up for what we're going to talk about, is uh, you said you wanted to wait until later in life to join the Sea Org because you wanted to be a parent. Yes. You wanted to have children. So um, yes. that makes this whole, your whole story completely insane to me and not and not against you at all. Just that, no, no, that, that this is what it is. You wanted children and you and Mark were, were expecting. Yes. So we so Mark and I met at the Inbase. Um like I said, I started working there in September 1991, um, and Mark was already there. Um, he's been working there, I think, since 89, and he's a, almost two years older than I am. Um, but we, anyway, in August 1992, when I was 17 and he was 19, we got married. We had to go to Vegas because I was under 18, and in, ironically, in California, if you get married under the age of 18, at least at that time, you had to um, get blood work done and you had to see a psychologist. Well, obviously, we were not allowed right. to see a psychologist, right. so we went to Vegas. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, and and funnily enough, um, I, I mean, I don't know, it's not it's not really funny, but ironically, I guess, um, when I talked to my mom. And I said, you know, hey, I want to get married. And she said, the first thing she said is, well, I think you should wait six months. And I'm like, what? She'd already signed over guardianship with me, by the way, by that point. It, that was a requirement for me to be able to be posted at the Scientology headquarters, was that she signed over guardianship with me. So she signed it over to a woman I'd never met by the name of Leo Adams. Um, but my dad, my stepdad knew her, but I'd never met her. How does that work? Because she's signing over a guardianship of you to the Sea Org at a, at a much older age than when she dropped you off at St. Hill. Yeah. Well, she still had legal parental rights over me, though. She just didn't use them or exercise no. them? No. Okay. Yeah, that's probably why it didn't mean very much to me, even, that she signed over a guardianship right. when I was 16. Like, oh, whatever. Right. That ship already sailed, Mom. I hate to break it to you. Right. Um, anyway. But, yeah, so, so that had happened. But one of the conversations I had with my mom was, well, have you and Mark talked about having kids? Well, 
of course, I couldn't tell her. Uh, no, we haven't talked about having kids. If I talk with Mark about having kids, we're going to be uh, under security watch and being uh, interrogated whilst being required to do heavy manual labor. That is forbidden, taboo. You don't talk about it. You know, because essentially a conversation about, hey, do you want to have kids, is paramount in Scientology's mind to a discussion of, do you want to leave the C organization? And that, a conversation of that is a suppressive act, and uh, you'll be declared. So we would be Mm. isolated from each other, not allowed to talk to each other. Anyway, you know, of course my mom didn't understand that. She was a public Scientologist. She, she didn't even know where I was working. The, the headquarters of our location in Hemet, California, is confidential. A, a public Scientologist is not allowed to know where that property is located. Huh. <clears throat> anyway, so, so yeah, cut to, you know, Mark and I got married in August 1992, and, uh, in, Approximately, well, early 1994, I'd not been being, neither of us had been being paid. So while we were supposedly due $46 a week for our, you know, 120 hours of work a week, we weren't even going to pay back. So I had no money to be able to pay for um, birth control, and I ended up getting pregnant. I didn't mean to get pregnant, but I did. And, you know, I had always in my mind sworn that knowing, knowing what the process was at the base, knowing what the policy was, that if a woman got pregnant and refused to have an abortion, that she would be uh, immediately taken off post, not allowed to talk to her spouse, put on under full-time security watch, put on heavy manual labor, and interrogated non-stop until she changed her mind and then be required to have an abortion. That's what I understood were the consequences of getting pregnant. So, um, when, when I found out, I mean, I, I was, I was absolutely devastated. You know, what should have been a joyful moment of, wow, this is amazing, was the worst thing that could possibly have ever happened to me. I was heartbroken, devastated, scared, and I could talk to absolutely nobody about it. I mean, it was, it, it was my worst nightmare come true, you know, and, and I, uh, obviously I've, I've talked about it before, it's, it's very, I don't know, I don't know what to say, it's, those wounds will never heal, it's just, um, you know, I can wish I can turn back time, I just can't, and the only thing I can do is, you know, expose the abuses of Scientology. And, and I will say that I know since I start, started talking out on this subject, I've had people contact me who are still in Scientology under the radar, and they've given me names of couples who have been allowed to leave and have children because of myself and other people like me who had the same experience of forced abortion speaking out on this subject. And that's the only... Um, you know, peace I can find with myself and with the world. Is, wow, you're making a difference. I, I'm trying. I'm, I'm going to keep trying. I know I know that, you know, Scientology will always cover it up. But meanwhile, I have names of children 
who were born because this forced abortion practice was exposed. So it's almost like they kind of need those children now to keep to keep numbers. You know, even though it doesn't matter, they'll say whatever numbers they have to say. But uh, this is like reverse what you see in society right now. There, there, there's always there's this ongoing battle constantly, and we're not going to get into the politics of it. But about the right of abortion, right? There's the whole thing about you know pro-lifers, pro-choicers, and the one thing that's always being argued the loudest is you don't have a right to tell me that I can't abort my baby. Is what they say, right? But this was like the reverse of that. It was like it was take the choice to have the child, the choice to give a life was taken from you, and they'll say that they didn't force you to do it, but they kind of forced you to do it. They absolutely did. I mean, I was I was escorted by a male staff member to Planned Parenthood. He waited in the waiting room while I was there, and I had been grilled on what to say, how to respond. You know, I mean, I, I remember sitting there wishing I could just scream out loud and beg for help, but I knew if I did that, I would never see Mark again. I, I never would. They would cart me off, and that would be that. I'd never see my mom. I'd never see my family. I'd never see Mark. I'd be entirely on my own. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I, like I said, I wish I could turn back time. But the problem is, I was, at that time, I was, what, I guess I was 19. You know, I just, but it was, it was absolutely a breaking moment for me, for sure. And, you know, at, at that moment, I decided if I ever got pregnant again, I would absolutely fight them to the, you know, heart. And unfortunately, I did get pregnant again. But this time, I was in Clearwater, Florida. I had been sent down there. By that time, I'd been promoted to RTC, Religious Technology Center, which is pretty much as high up the food chain as you could get in the C organization. It was great. That was kind of David Miscavige's personal organization. And so I had just arrived in that, in that, um, organization I was sent to Clearwater for training. Mark was in California and um and so it was it was so bizarre what happened but um we were in a meeting like for I don't know eight hours straight standing up. I was wearing heels because I was in uniform and David Miscavige was coming in and out of this conference room all day yelling and screaming at 20 RTC staff members, and I was one of them. And um, probably about five hours into the meeting, um, I collapsed. And two staff members standing next to me caught me, otherwise I would have completely hit the floor. Um, you know, it was one of those where you see scars and you just collapse. And they, they carried me out of the room, took me to a, a private room, had me lay down, and about 20 minutes later, I... And, Chris, I had no idea I was pregnant. I, I did not know. And 20 minutes later, they bring me a pregnancy test and they do this test. <laughs> like, what the heck is going on? Anyway, uh, it was positive. And, um, and that, so, so now I'm in the exact same position again that I, that I swore I would never get into again. And it was a very similar circumstance, by the way. I had been paid for months prior to going into RCC. 
people in RTC were paid every week no matter what, but I'd been in gold, Golden Era Productions, and I hadn't been paid for months, couldn't afford birth control, blah, blah, blah. And uh, and even at that point, I rarely, by that point, I rarely saw my husband. We were on totally different schedules. Uh, we didn't eat meals together. We rarely slept in the same bed. It was, you know, we were working around the clock, crazy, um, psychotic lifestyle. Anyway, um, so I was given this pregnancy test. It was positive, and then I was uh, called into a room and grilled on what what you know that I needed to go get an abortion and um, and I I wrote a CSP completed staff work to be able to be allowed to call my husband um, because I was in Clearwater and he was in California. I wasn't allowed to call him. I had no way to speak to him. Um, if I wrote him a letter, it would be read. And so I decided to try and make a call to him. And my plan was that in the call, I would tell him that I was pregnant and that I was going to leave. And, um, of course, I didn't say that to anybody, but I requested the authority to be able to call my husband. And Ann Raffin refused to let me call him. And so, I felt, once again, I felt completely trapped. I knew that if I carried out my plan, I was willing to bet everything I owned that they would never even tell Mark that I was pregnant. They would just say that I routed out and that was it and be done with it. And, and I would never see him again and he would never even know. And, you know, again, by that time I was 21 years old and I was scared and weak and intimidated and bullied into um, going through with that a second time, even though I sworn I would never do it. It was devastating. And I didn't even get to tell Mark what happened until six months later, the next time I saw him. He doesn't get a say, and you being the mother, you don't get a say. No. No. Wow. Okay, so... Something I've seen you guys talk about a bunch is um, I'm, 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 that's that that the whole situation is, is terrible. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, you say a lot uh, when you were there. One of the things you noticed at first, I remember seeing this on the aftermath. You talked about how oh this person could escape, this person could escape, that person could mm-hmm. escape. There's a hunt for them. Were you guys actually using the word escape within the walls of Hemet mm-hmm. as event base? No, it was called blow. It was just talking about blowing. Okay. Yeah, somebody's blowing. That's the word because there's there's a there's an Elrond Hubbard reference. It's called blow up, and it talks in there about it. Said Elrond Hubbard says the only reason anyone ever tries to leave is because they've committed crimes against the organization, and that's called a blow. So when you try to so if we're sitting in a, an office and you say, I'm out of here, I'm leaving, and you get up and walk out the door, you're alone in Scientology terms. So that's what what was the Scientology word for escape. Is everything, when I talk to you, you, you've been really good about this in this conversation, and and everyone I've talked to pretty much, what I get from these these structure of the conversation, the way things are said, it's very clear that you know, people can question, could, would I have done this if I go back? Can I, can I fight against it if I go back in time? 
but you won't really, you know, like I said, you didn't have a choice. It was all blackmail. It's all emotional blackmail. Yeah, yeah. And when I look yeah. at that... Yeah. We were leveraged and controlled and, you know, like for me, I'd been raised since the age of four to follow orders and do as I was told or risk losing everything. You know, it's really, it's really difficult and I think it's hard... It's hard for, for some, someone on the outside with no knowledge of Scientology to really understand the depth of control and leverage that Scientology yields over its members, particularly fear of members. Um, but the fact is that that was the life I lived. It was the only life I ever knew. And so, you know, I had been very carefully programmed to follow their orders. That was the bottom line. Does it um does it strike you in, in a weird way? Does it affect you that these children, uh, because you grew up in Scientology and you want it, and you've mentioned this before. This word is, is a great word to use for it. But you you were seeking that unconditional love, that that caring uh, person in your life, that caring family member, and there's children whose parents want to be a part of your life. And these children disconnect from their parents, you know, you know, the resource, you know, the cons. Um, the list goes on and the Joneses, you know. Uh, does that freak you out that these children don't want this relationship with their parents? You know, I, I've seen it happen so many times. I mean, so on that subject, it's, it's funny you bring that up. But when I was at the base, I used to see people on a regular basis being told, oh, you have to disconnect from your sister or your mom or, you know. In my head, I just, you know, my my voice in the back room that never never got to speak out <laughs> to anybody was saying, wow, if anybody ever tried to make me disconnect from my family, I would never do it. Yeah, who has the right? Wow. Counter opposed to, to that, though, um, you know, for... for for a number of years, I worked very closely with Shelly Miscavige, and Shelly would often say, well, uh, she would quote Hubbard and say, well, rank comes responsibility, and um, and and basically the, the programming was that the further up you go, the less human you have the right to be. And so, for example, when I was in RTC, she, she, want, she told me several times, Said, uh, yeah, people who are in RTC have forgone their right to blow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I it's true because, like, anytime someone from RTC blew, they would be hunted down and brought back. I mean, Sue Wilhair blew to South Africa and they got her back. Um, Sue Gentry at the time, and her parents were declared as thieves who lived in South Africa. That's where she. Hello? Hello there. Sorry, you cut out, but I got yeah. you. Okay, yeah. Um, anyway, so the so you know, I I don't know, I and and I was being pressured for five years to divorce Mark, and it got to the point where I, I had reached breaking point, and and it's not, and I didn't ever fill out divorce papers, but I'd gotten to the point finally in. Um, September 2004, uh, I was told I was going to be kicked out of RTC because I refused to divorce Mark. And, you know, being kicked out of RTC was pretty much 
the worst thing that could happen, not because I wanted to remain in RTC, but because getting kicked out of there was, you know, I was going to be, you know, I don't know what, uh, now in fad, bad refute on David Miscavige's bad side because I didn't follow the order to divorce Mark. Right. Would you possibly be RPF? Yeah, I mean, that's, after that is when I ended up in the, the beginning form, formation stages of what has now, what's now known as the whole. Um, that wow. Was, you know, it was a starting back then, and that's where I ended up because I refused to divorce Mark. Um, anyway, the point being that when when you're in that life, you know, I I thought, oh, I'll never divorce Mark. I'll never um, I'll never disconnect from my mom or my family or or any of these things. But you you say that without having the pressure brought to bear. And when the pressure is brought to bear, the bottom line is any person has a breaking point. And that yeah. you know that's how you you know. Children disconnecting from their parents, parents disconnecting from their children. I mean, you know, and it's it's the exact opposite of what should be the product of organized religion. Bring people together. Organized religion is supposed to be about building family bonds, not about controlling people to follow orders. You know, it's wow. uh, I, I'm firmly of the belief that Hubbard knew exactly what he was getting into. And there's there's an advice where um, so it's an LRH advice. It's not broad public knowledge, but where he defines religion as uh, implants on a whole track designed to control people. That's what he considered was the definition of religion. <clears throat> well, that says a lot. Right, he's projecting what he's doing, and that's with almost every policy, with every instruction, with everything we, we see. Right? I mean, it's it's, it's all a projection of what they do. Yeah, that's right. All right, so I'm gonna to try to I'm gonna to try to do a speed round here because I know we're running short on time for you. Um, yes. <laughs> the um, the Mark ever talk about being involved in any smear videos or were they being done when he was in Golden Era Productions? Um. Well, no, not the way they are now. Uh, yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. Oh God, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, but certainly, yes, they've done videos to to, to try and influence court cases and um, things of that nature. And, and to me, this is just a new a new low level of despicable actions on the part of Scientology that shows people how far they will go to to hide the truth of what they're doing. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll say this: the um one of the biggest stories with you, I will not get into because everybody else does, and it's just you know not important really, is how you were involved in some celebrities' uh, auditing sessions, and you were the one that was determined if the needle floating and all that good stuff. Yeah. Being involved, I know you don't want to talk too much about it because you have respect for other human beings, so you're not going to out what people say in all the sessions. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, in your estimation, just just generally speaking, celebrities. They have a pretty good idea of what they're turning a blind eye to. Uh, yes, I, I absolutely think so. I would say that you know some celebrities know more than others. Like I know David Miscavige would tell us all the time that he would 
tell Tom Cruise how horrible things were at the, at the base and, and how out of it people were there and their latest crimes that they'd committed, quote-unquote. And, you know, I mean, he would talk to Tom Cruise on a regular basis and tell us that he was talking to Tom Cruise. And, in fact, there were several times that he said, oh, I told Tom Cruise and he's going to come down here and put your ethics in and, you know, things of that nature. Wow. So that, so I know that there were levels of exposure. Do I think that all celebrities would talk to you that way? Absolutely not. Dave Miscavige was all about his club and he kept a very close circle of people who, who, who he would talk to openly. Um, I mean, that's what a, a sociopath does. Um, they surround themselves with people who will do their bidding and that's what he did. And to everybody else, he was this, you know, charismatic, uh, domineering, kind of daunting personality who ran all of Scientology and, you know, but behind the scenes, we got to see a whole other side of David Miscavige. So, oh. But to answer your question, I think that, you know, celebrities like anybody else, like me or anybody else, was leveraged and controlled just the same. You know, they, Scientology had the power to take their children away or take their family away because, you know, we all know how heavily Scientology pressures you once you're in Scientology to bring yeah. your family in, and even Tom Cruise did that. So, you know, there's nobody that was exempt from the power that Scientology yields. Wow, okay, wow. I want to clarify something real quick, um, and that was interesting. I, I think yeah. there's there's some, some, some nuggets in there that uh, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, the, the escape itself, um, if I understand correctly, help me understand this, because I, I, I've looked at it, and I watched these videos, and I read it, and I saw the documentaries, I've seen the things you've done, and, and heard you talk, but I can't remember exactly. Mark blew without telling you he was blowing? Yes. I had not been home in, in a week, and, and he, he radioed me, actually, at 4 o'clock in the morning and asked if I was coming home. And I said I was going to try and come at home and at least take a shower. Anyway, long, long story short, I never made it home. And, and he had been told he was going to the RPS the next day, which meant he was going to get shipped to L.A. and he would never see me again. Um, and so he took off. Does he do that hoping that you're going to follow suit somehow? Is he Is he not? I mean, he doesn't know. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see you no. again. No, he had no idea. We'd never talked about it. We had never talked about leaving. And, you know, of course, I was devastated, angry, uh, upset. Like, what the heck? You left me behind. But like we talked about with Leah on season one of Aftermath, episode five, he didn't know if I would rat him out. And I, honestly, I don't know if I would have either. Uh, mm. You know, blowing or escaping out of there was very scary to me. I had no idea. I, I knew my family wouldn't help me. I had no contacts to the outside world. I never held a job. I had no education. You know, the only thing I'd ever done was work for Scientology. I was born into it, raised in it. That's all I had, that's all I, the only world I knew. So the thought of escaping from that, while exhilarating, was also very scary. I, I told people before, you know, the thought of following Mark out, I mean, hey, Chris, don't get me wrong. I packed my bag 
that night and hid it under my bed. There was no doubt in my mind I was going to follow Mark. But had the circumstances been different that he had told me beforehand, I don't know, my fear might have driven me to, to call security and say, oh, stop him from going, we can't do this. You might still be there. Off, you know. The programming was such that I don't know. Even though I, I wanted to leave more than anything in, in the world, I was miserable. I had I, I couldn't even eat anymore. I'm five seven. At that point, I was I was 105 pounds. Mm. I, I was like I I hadn't had dining privileges for six months. So I was living off protein bars because I refused to eat dinner by the trash compactor for an entire property that stank like rotten food. You know, I, I refuse to do it. I'm like, I'm not, this is degradation of human beings to the point that I, and, uh, you know, so I was in very bad shape physically, emotionally, spiritually, I was a wreck. Anyway, so uh-huh. I, I didn't, yeah, no, I, I didn't know if I would turn him in, so he, he took, he saw a window and he took it. And, and initially, they tried to use me to get him back. In fact, Denny Linson um, radioed me one, I think, two nights after he Mark had escaped at like four o'clock in the morning. And she said, "David Miscavige orders that Mark be brought back. Uh, he's going to go back on post. Um, yada yada yada." So, so while I was planning to, to escape as well and follow Mark, a I had to figure out how I was going to do that, and b if now I just got told they bring him back, the worst thing in the world I could do is blow. No, he comes back. Yeah. And, and then my, my vision was we, I'd be racing down Highway 79 and they'd be, the security truck would be bringing Mark back and we would pass and that would be it. I would still never see him again. Wow. Did he work you over mentally? Did he try to, he try to convince you that he deserted you and he wasn't worth worrying about? Did he? Yeah. Absolutely. The first one, within an hour of him, him escaping, uh, I was trying to go after him, and initially they were going to let me because I was quote unquote, you know, high up, blah blah blah. blah. But the bottom line is, their their unspoken rule book requires that they not involve spouses in recovering someone who's escaped. You'll you know, get convinced to stay. Nine times out of ten, the spouse will escape too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what happened. So I was getting ready to go after Mark. Uh, while he was, you know, driving off on his motorcycle, security was going to take me out there to convince him to come back. But then um, Sue Wilhair, again, uh, said, nope, you can't go. Uh, and then I got told, yeah, no, Mark, Mark's gone over to the dark side. He he called the police, which wasn't even true, as, as I now know. I've seen the police report from, from the incident. A passerby saw security run Mark off the road. <laughs> And they called the police. And for that passerby, that stranger who I will never know, I owe my life. Wow. Yeah. Everything would be different. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I, I do something with every guest here. You might have heard of called 10 Questions. A little fun thing to do at the end. Sometimes some are serious, some are fun. If you don't like them, you can pass. You want to you wanna participate? Okay, before we do that, I just want to say real quick, you, I, I'm really happy for you, and I think you're probably in a, a good place now, I bet. I know this stuff you'll never 
be able to get past, and that's understandable. But I've seen the photos. I've seen the um, I've seen the natural, unbelievable joy in your entire family uh, when you guys you guys are you guys are enjoying your family to the fullest. It seems, and I couldn't be happier. In a world where marriages and families don't always stay together anyway, without a cult. Coming from where you came from is a testament to what you guys have, and I'm really proud of you guys and happy for you guys. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we, Mark and I just celebrated our 25th year of marriage. Congratulations. That's something in and of itself. Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I think ex-scientologists who grew up as a second generation sometimes become better parents just because they understand, you know, uh, what they missed out on and they want to give the best to their kids, and that's us. That's a great thing yeah. in that respect. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna do we're gonna do ten questions with Claire Headley. Here we go. Uh, number one, so do you, uh, Colorado looks like a beautiful place. I've never been there, but I've never met a bad person from Colorado either. Is that? Do you ever have any aspirations or thoughts of leaving Colorado and trying a different environment, or are you like it where you are? We love it here. We are so happy. It's a beautiful environment. Amazing people. We, you know, we are so happy here. Oh, good, good. All right. Uh, number two, pancakes or waffles? Huh. Uh, pancakes. All right. Number three. All right, this might be a tough one. Okay. Um, true or false? In your opinion, has Marty Rathbun been sabotaging the critics in the ex-Scientology community longer than we actually realize? Uh, true. I have theories on that. Yeah, that was too far. I have theories on that, too. So. Uh, okay, I'm new to this all, so I try not to give all my theories. But. And Chris, I considered Marty a friend. You know, I really did. Well, yeah. You know, when, when somebody so intentionally um, throws all their friends under the bus, I have to say, I'm sorry. You know, at some point, uh, I don't wish him evil, but he has done immense damage to people that I love. Yeah, and not to get not, not to extend the interview anymore, but just real quick, what brings this up is, is there's a certain irony to me to this, because you talked about, you mentioned briefly your lawsuit against the Scientology, and they used all kinds of loopholes and things to get you guys to owe them money for court costs, which I'm sure they try to use yeah. as a win for them, but it's just, everybody sees through it. But they tried to absolve you of your debt by trying to convince you to give information on Marty Rathbun and other critics. They wanted you guys to sell out. Yes. And yes, the, the, we have that in writing. In writing. And, and the great irony of that is is sort of what we're seeing from Marty. And it's, it's just, I wonder, I wonder if they couldn't get to you guys, so they went to him. Anyway. I mean, like I said. Their approach is control and leverage. Obviously, they found a way to control and leverage Martin. Whatever way that is, that's the beginning and the, and the end of it, in my mind. Okay, very good. Uh, n- number four, complete this sentence. My kids really make me... Oh, uh, that's a tough one to, to fulfill in one, in one sentence. <laughs> my kids really make me grateful to be alive. How about that? That's a wonderful statement. That's something you can't. Something you won't go back and go on. I shouldn't have said that. Um, number five. Do you agree 
uh, constitutional rights can be abused, but should also be subject to legal scrutiny. And I think I think the people hide behind these constitutional rights. What do you think? Okay, sorry. Say that question again. Yeah, constitutional rights can be abused, and they should be subject to legal scrutiny. Often, constitutional rights are used as an explanation or excuse to do terrible things. Yes, I do agree with that. Okay, and another sentence to complete. Number six. Raisins are. Razors? Raisins. Not razors, no. Raisins. Yeah. No, 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 I'm like, what? <laughs> raisins are. Uh, uh, an ice snack? <laughs> okay, good, okay. There's uh, no telling what reactions you get, so I ask questions like that. Uh, number seven, since being out of Scientology, what's the best thing you got to do that you wouldn't have done? Besides family stuff. Enjoy, enjoy every single day of my life. <laughs> Sounds solid enough for me. Awesome. This might be a tough one. Number eight, true or false, there is hope for David Miscavige. Uh, false. You know, I hear, uh, I agree with you, but I hear, I hear his dad talk, and it makes me, uh, it makes me sad to think that way, though, because he, I think he has hope, and... It's just, uh, well, sir, it's tough. I mean, I have hope for my mom, too. I, you know, that's the nature of family. You never, you never, real, real people in the real world don't ever throw in the towel on their family. Right. Unlike Scientology. Right. <laughs> Unlike in the world of Scientology. But, you know, but for me personally, my experiences and what I saw, that's my answer. Very good, very good. Number nine, uh, what's your guilty pleasure? Pleasure. Yeah, we don't have to go all sex check on it, just whatever, <laughs> whatever's acceptable to say. Tiramisu. <laughs> okay. All right, and number 10, do you have any messages for anybody that's connected, your mom, anybody uh, that you want to say in case you they hear I, I, I love them. I, you know, I forgive them, but they have to, they, 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 they have to prove that I can trust them. We have so much lost time, so many burnt bridges. You know, not not again, not to turn this into another story, but the fact is, I almost died in 2013 when my when my youngest was uh, six weeks old. I ended up in ICU, sepsis, and and I almost died. It could have gone either way, and and at that moment, I found peace with the decisions my family have made, and I realized the people who loved me were there with me around me. And for my kids' sake, and for my sake, and and my, you know, well-being, emotionally, spiritually, and everything else, they've made their decisions. I'm not trying to change them. I certainly hope that that they will change them on their own. But I'm living my life, and I'm 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 doing what I know to be right, and I'm living the best life I can live, and I'm, that's what I'm going to keep doing. And I'm grateful for every day I have on this earth to do what what I can. <laughs> All right. Well, you keep being amazing because I think I think uh, your joy and your output into the world uh, rubs off on others. I think people see it, and I think it uh, it brightens other people's days. So, so keep keep doing what you're doing. I, you're doing I, great. I hope so. That's very kind of you to say. We all only we're all only human. No one's perfect, and I know that better than anybody. So, you know, we, we just try to make the right decisions and do the right thing by those we love, and that's, that's the best we can do. All right, well, thank you so much for taking the time and being so open and uh, 
It's been great. Thank you uh, for being on the show. You're very welcome. I appreciate your time, Chris. Thanks for what you're doing as well. No problem. Every voice counts. Every voice counts. All right, so that was Claire Headley. Great, great interview. I really appreciate her. Again, thank you, Claire, for being on the show. Um, next week, next week we'll get to uh, Sina Kamula. So if you're very sensitive about the subject of uh, child abuse, sexual abuse, and uh, and the like, and suicide, uh, all these things are discussed very in depthly next week. Uh, you'll get the full interview, I believe, on Thursday. Just keep checking back with me because I'm not sure. I believe on Thursday I might give you part one of Tara Riley because that was a three-hour interview, so I'm splitting that one up. She had a lot of interesting things to say. That also, just a warning for you all out there if you're sensitive to the talk of uh, suicide, uh, that is going to be prevalent. It's very important, and I, uh, I really think you guys will get something out of it. So uh, for now, uh, I did get a call come in. Now, I usually don't take calls on pre-recorded interview days. Last time I did, that was a nightmare, as you all might know. Some of you might know. Uh, but I usually don't take calls during the show, but uh, the call went away. Uh, so if you have a question, something important you want to say, just email me, cgshere at gmail.com. I will respond either privately or on the air, whatever you prefer, uh, so we can follow up if you need to. Uh, for now. Uh, stay connected, and that about sums it up. See you next week. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says... Don't listen to your mum and dad. Don't talk to your mum and dad. That's bad. Yeah. Run. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yeah, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So 